You are Locked On Knicks, your daily podcast on the New York Knicks. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Shot blocked. Porzingis with his fourth rejection. What he does is contagious. He comes infectious. And across the lane. Baker launches it. Jack to Porzingis. Fires up the ball. Welcome, everybody, to Locked On Knicks, the podcast that's in the 99th percentile of forgetting to take out the recycle. Every week I forget, and then I've got a whole thing of recycling just sitting there. Such a pain in my butt. I'm your host, James Marcita, a.k.a. Death Jam Gundy, and this is episode 265. Mm. On today's show, we're joined by the wonderful Dan Favale of NBA Math and the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I actually went on the Hardwood Knox Podcast to do a little Knicks season preview at the beginning of the season. So I am beyond thrilled to return the favor and have Dan on our show today to take a look around the NBA. We're going to talk about tanking. How big of a problem is it? What is the actual problem? We're going to talk about the coach of the year race. Who are the front runners? Who should be the front runners? We're going to talk about LeBron being the oldest NBA player ever to average a triple-double. We're going to take a look at under-the-radar NBA stories. And we're going to close out the show by talking about a couple of statistical tidbits. One small note before we start, I'm going to do a mailbag episode on Friday, so sending your questions now to LockedOnNicks at gmail.com. You can also tweet at me at LockedOnNicks. All right, let's start the show. Hit it, Marv! Yes! Dan! Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing spectacular, James. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. I'm ready to talk about all things NBA, and I'm ready to start with something that I talk about sort of tangentially on every single Locked On Knicks episode at this point, and that is tanking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's been, you know, the past couple years, I think, with the rise of Sam Hinkie's process, it's been even more at the forefront of a lot of NBA discussions than it had been uh, prior to the past couple years. And it kind of is gaining steam right now with, you know, the sheer number of teams who are stuck at 18 wins and have been for what feels like months. Um, there's also been some acknowledgement from Adam Silver about, you know, tinkering with um, the back end of playoff teams in that bracket, maybe having some sort of like play-in tournament for the 7 and 8 seed. People are trying to figure out a way to solve tanking. So I kind of want to start by asking you, Um, A two-pronged question. One is, how bad is the problem, actually? But maybe even before that, I kind of would like to ask you, like, what is the problem? That may be an obvious question, but I think when people talk about tanking, they're often talking about a bunch of different things that are all wrapped up in this one issue that gets that umbrella of tanking. So I'm kind of curious, like, what your take is. Like, what do you think the actual problem is when it comes to tanking? 
Right now, it kind of seems like the actual problem might be, and I don't mean to dilute it down this far, but just the existence of the Golden State Warriors, or more specifically what we've seen in the NBA Finals over the last three years, where it's the same two teams over and over again. If you know that LeBron James is just an automatic ticket into the NBA Finals and you play in the East, or if you're in the West and you know the alternative is to either be stuck in the middle or just be a first-round stepping stone to the Golden State Warriors should you fall in kind of that fringe territory. Why would you try and stay there? Why not try and bottom out? And I think we've just seen some of that this year. And I know a lot of people, we look at the standings now, as you mentioned, and it just it looks like crap. It, mm-hmm. You have so many teams hovering around the 20-win or less mark. But one or maybe just the entire thing is the lottery is going to change next season where you have the teams with the three worst records getting an equal shot at the number one pick. You have to imagine that these squads based specifically on what Mark Cuban said about having told the Mavericks players they're better off losing at this point. Teams just want to get in that one last final tank and make sure that they can get in those best odds. I don't think it would be this egregious in most years. And as LeBron James ebbs into his twilight as the Golden State Warriors' title window eventually fades, I don't think it will be as pronounced of an issue by any means. Do you think there's a chance that the tanking problem, such as it is, is is one that's more of people's kind of awareness of the strategy over it being worse than ever before? I mean, one piece of information to sort of like back up this claim I'm maybe making, perhaps, <laughs> um, is I was looking at the win percentages, the combined win percentages of like the bottom 10 teams in the league over history um, earlier this morning as I was preparing for the pod. And so this year, obviously, there are more games to play. That win percentage will probably get a little bit lower. But the bottom 10 teams, they're winning 34.6% of their games. Last year, the bottom 10 teams won 35.1% of their games. The three years prior to that, it was some version of 31 point blank percent of their games. So then I was like, all right, let me go back further. 2000, bottom 10 teams won 31.9% of their games combined. 95, it was 32.6. 90, it was 31.2. It isn't until you start getting to like a much smaller league when the talent pool isn't as diluted. Like 85, the bottom 10 teams won 37% of their games. Same with 80. Um, in those two years, there were... 23 teams in the league and then 22 teams in the league in 1980. So is it fair to say that the tanking problem isn't necessarily that there's so much worse bad basketball? Like, do you think that's a fair statement that it's something else that's bugging people? I would say that's fair. And I would think your evidence kind of supports that too, because you're factoring in years then where you had the ultimate ultra Sixers tank and the winning percentage was still kind of similar when you're going back decades for those bottom 10 records. Maybe the bigger problem is the talent gap between a mediocre team and an elite team just seems to be bigger. Like, forget the tankers for a minute. You look at, you know, if you want to throw the Knicks into this, are you ever going to see another number eight seed have a chance going to the NBA Finals? I don't think any eighth-place playoff team thinks that it would have a chance to do that 
nowadays. And maybe you could even go even further and say that has to do with we need to get back to best of five in the first round so that we pave the way for a couple of more upsets. Or maybe mm-hmm. it's a matter of we need to get to the 1-16 to 16 playoff formatting so that the playoff matchups get more favorable for certain teams. It could be an issue on that front. And certainly with what you found, I didn't even know that with the winning percentages, I would think it supports that. I don't think there's, there's no easy fix, just like there's no one issue. But I, I definitely... I struggle to call tanking an epidemic even now. Right. And that's kind of where I come down on it. And I feel like a lot of the issue might even be cultural. I mean, games are more expensive than ever. And you have a certain segment of the fan base, which, I mean, I don't necessarily think is wrong to think this. But they hear that people are tanking. They hear that they're not necessarily putting their best foot forward. And it, like, pisses them off. You know, because they're like, I'm paying my good money to go to this game. Like, why should I not see you try to win. Um, But part of me even thinks that, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, how bad of a problem is it actually? Because in some instances, you could even make the argument that tanking is more fun than the alternative. This might be more of an outlier, but when I look at someone like the Knicks this year, and you could say, yes, their hand was forced by the Chris Depps injury. But what their version of tanking is, I'm having way more fun watching the Knicks quote-unquote tank and actually play this young group of players that they're trying to develop than I would if I was seeing, you know, pre-tank minutes from Courtney Lee and Jared Jack and Lance Thomas. Um, Like, how big of a problem do you actually think it is? I I just don't think it's there. And you brought it up. It's the alternative. Do you want to be the Hornets where you're just capped out to the moon now and you have no visible way of improving your roster and yet okay maybe you were gonna come within the playoff peripherals this season somehow by finishing on a hot streak but you're five games under 500 right now you're not going to be a threat if you get in the playoffs and the other thing might be to consider and you brought it up with attendance is there really a problem with a one-year tank because you look at some of these teams that are near the bottom of the standings right now the Atlanta Hawks, they can't afford to tank forever. They just don't have the fan base to do it. Same for the Memphis Grizzlies. We know the Mavericks don't like to tank and that this would be a one-year tank. Uh, teams like the Bulls, the Knicks, and the Lakers, yeah, they can labor through longer rebuilds, but that's fine because then you have the built-in fan goodwill, someone like you who likes watching the youth movement with the Knicks. And then on the flip side, you're always going to have the teams like the Hornets who are going to try and avoid it or the Pistons who are going to make that trade for for Blake Griffin to try and really just up their status immediately. We're not talking about serial incompetence in a lot of cases. Yes, the Sacramento Kings are an exception, but they're an exception. They're not the rule. Perhaps you want to look at the Phoenix Suns ever since they were kind of tricked after that superb 2013-2014 season into going all in. You could throw them in there, but they're not even a team that's in that same company as, as Sacramento. So again, I just I struggle to call it an epidemic right now, and I get why the NBA probably isn't crazy about what's happening at the moment, but I think there are just so many things that contribute to it. Most notably, you have the Warriors and that competitive gap between the elite teams and then the okay teams. And then also, again, this is the last year to really just tank and know that you have some control or more control over your lottery odds. Yeah, it really does seem like you mentioned like the the Warriors and then the Cavs dominating the East with LeBron. It really just seemed like just a perfect storm uh, that will, like any storm, blow over. Sorry, as I was in the middle of making that <laughs> metaphor, I wanted to like throw up in my mouth. But I think it's accurate. I mean, I, I don't know. So 
like my final kind of question to you about the tank, uh, you know, uh, topic before we move on is just like from your own personal standpoint, would you be, if you were say Adam Silver, you know, what would you actually, what would you want to see be done to address this? If anything, are, are there any steps that you would like to like, as much as I'm saying, I don't think it's a huge problem. I'm not against tinkering. I'm not against always trying to improve the product to make the league as exciting as it can be. Is there anything that you think they should be doing? Any of these proposals that you've heard that you that you like or something that's like more esoteric that maybe not as many people talk about? What's your personal opinion on that? I feel like this is going to be a cop-out just because I've thought so much about it that I almost hate every single idea that's been proposed. <laughs> I think what's going to happen in 2019 is fine. The idea of a play, like a tournament where you have like the teams playing to win for the right to better lottery odds, it seems super entertaining, but I can't get past the fact that and I'm trying to think of what would be a good example here, but I, like you're going to have players who are essentially competing for the right for their team to draft their replacement in certain instances. Uh, so why what, that tournament? What does it become? <laughs> right. Do you, like, are you going to see the teams tank to get in that tournament and then the players tank to make sure that their team doesn't win the tournament? That just creates this sort of weird push and pull. Like, why would uh, the Grizzlies would be a perfect example? Why is Marcus All, assuming the Grizzlies don't shut him down, going to try in that tournament? Um, and then if they do shut him down for the tournament, why would you want to watch it? So it's just that's bizarre to me. Um, what would be, I think, chaotic but super interesting would, is the rotating wheel yeah. where teams are almost scheduled to have the number one pick. I think it's unfair, given especially what we've seen this season with injuries, to kind of force teams into certain rebuilding timelines. But it would certainly make trades more interesting. Uh, it would kind of force teams that want to do these years-long tanks that Adam Silver wants to avoid uh, to to in turn avoid them altogether just because they're not going to have the flexibility. They're not going to be guaranteed high lottery odds or even a high pick in consecutive years. That would probably be, if we're just looking at the tanking matter specifically, that would probably be the best solution. I just don't, it seems like there are just so many ramifications and you know that there would be teams that really muck it up by how they sort of trade away picks. Couldn't you just imagine the Knicks? Yeah, you know, they, they know they're going to have the number one pick or the number two pick in the next two years, but they think that there's this sense of urgency because they have Kristaps. They're just going to trade away that number two pick, and now Kristaps has this injury, and it could end up setting them back a half decade, a decade or more. That risk is built in too, but if you're looking to avoid teams trying to tank, you're never going to get rid of that ingrained incompetency that we've seen from teams like the Kings or or the Knicks or some of these other squads but that would certainly eradicate the the method of tanking or at least the spirit of tanking in most years from most teams I mean I'm hopeful the Knicks are past those days although you never know there's been good signs with Perry and Mills but I'm sort of a pro labor I don't want to use the word nut but I am like incredibly pro labor and I think one easy way to get rid of tanking, which they will never do, is to get rid of the draft entirely, is to <sighs> largely get rid of the salary cap and let these guys go where, um, you know, it's a very complicated issue. But I think that the owners would never agree to something that doesn't, you know, artificially restrict player salaries, like lower than what the market would actually bear. If you want to get rid of tanking, there's one easy way, and it's no draft. It, that would be... Again, that's something that I think just creates this interesting layer of chaos, and it's so new 
to like the, the NBA doesn't have that. So to all of a sudden implement it would be just incredible to watch unfold. But it does give you it does give certain markets kind of an edge. And you don't have to worry about the Golden State Warriors going out and getting Luka Doncic this summer if that were the setup because presumably these guys are going to want to go somewhere where they could play. And if you factor in that there's no salary cap, uh, you know, there would be a natural dispersal of talent to some degree. I would, however, worry more outside of the draft when you're looking at free agency and as players get in their primes. What if LeBron and four or five all-stars just decide to basically split the salary cap five or six ways and then you create competitive imbalance that way? It is interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, my first instinct as someone who just despises management in basically all walks of life is get rid of the salary cap. It's only used to keep player salaries down. But I am sympathetic to if adequate, if like high enough, you could get most players making what they should make, like given like a, you know, quote unquote free market. Like, no such thing really exists. But I'm intrigued by the proposals that are like a higher salary cap, but no max contract. And then let's say that's it's a good one. And then let's say it's 150 million dollars. If you want to give LeBron like 120 million dollars a year, or whatever, you know, to use a ridiculous number, and then try to fill the rest of your squad with like minimum guys, like that's your choice. But that one really intrigues me: the no yeah. max salary, but with a salary cap. Yeah, that's what I was tripping over my words before, and I was talking under the guise of that. I, that that would be, I think, yeah. Yeah. a more viable solution than no salary cap because. Yeah. I just you look back to like some of those years with there's a lot of superstar talent in the NBA so maybe there would be more competition but you don't want to just ever have like a team like the Yankees from MLB that are just going to steamroll everyone for a what seems like decades at a time and maybe it's a little bit different now but you're going to have I would think in the NBA particularly with the way revenues trended with the TV money there are going to be a few teams that are just would spend through the roof when there's no salary cap every single year. Yeah, I think one thing is for sure, there's always going to be unintended consequences, even if you study it as much as it is humanly possible. You, you implement one of these things, you're going to have like weird consequences that you don't see coming. It just kind of is like par for the course. Um, I want to talk about the Coach of the Year race, but first, just want to remind everyone that you are listening to Locked On Knicks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, head on over to iTunes, rate us five stars, give us a sentence or two review. I like hearing what you guys have to say about the show. It also helps those reviews count more. Once again, that's Locked on Knicks. Fantasy sports fans, listen up. Did you know that your chances of winning on draft are 80% better than on salary cap sites? That's why draft is my favorite fantasy site. No more getting crushed by the pros. And it's not just me. More than 1 million people have downloaded draft. Play in a real live NBA draft right now and be done in under five minutes, then get paid out the next day. All new players get a free entry into a real money draft when you make your first deposit, but you gotta use my promo code LONIX. There are many promo codes like it, but this one is mine's. That's right. Play in a real money draft for free just by using my promo code LONIX, but it gets so much better. Draft is so friggin' sure that you're gonna love it that they're offering Locked On Knicks listeners, that's you, a money-back guarantee up to $100. You literally can't lose if you bet less than $100. Just search Draft 
in your app store or go to draft.com and come play free right now with promo code L-O-NIX. So let's talk about the Coach of the Year race. Um, for people like me and some of our listeners who just have our heads buried in like, Nix, 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 <laughs> every minute of the day. Uh, sometimes we can lose sight of the wider NBA. So I'm wondering if you could bring us up to speed on your thoughts on who should be in the running, who is in the running, and why. My pick for Coach of the Year right now, mm-hmm. and with, to just me, would have to be Dwayne Casey of the Raptors. I just... I, I, they have the best record in the Eastern Conference, so there's that. They have the third best record in the league, the third best net rating. But I just appreciate that the Raptors have undergone this stylistic overhaul almost overnight compared to last season. And it's in a way that would normally require a coaching change. But Casey has adapted. They're taking a ton more of their shots at the rim or from beyond the arc and cutting out a lot of two-pointers. His reliance on the youth has been incredible. Toronto's second most used lineup this year is an all-bench unit, and it's spearheaded by four players who are age 25 or younger, not one of whom has more than three seasons of experience. And that group is absolutely destroying opponents. The Raptors bench has the best point differential. The, the Warriors and the Raptors are the only two teams to rank in the top five of both offensive and defensive efficiency. Mm-hmm. Credit is going to go to the players as it should, but to see this complete about face in identity from the Raptors while keeping the same coach who a lot of people thought would be resistant to change, I just feel like that's something I can't stop appreciating. And again, I don't they're ahead of both the Celtics and the Cavaliers in the Eastern Conference right now. And just this group and everything they've done, particularly on the defensive end too, uh, it's just it's it's amazing to me. And I don't actually know. It doesn't seem like he's getting a lot of love yeah. in this department, or maybe there people just aren't talking about it enough. But I, I honestly don't know how you would necessarily vote for anyone over him at this point. I mean, it's really interesting because I'm one of the people who, I don't know that I thought it was dumb, but questioned them bringing back this core. You're like, well, we've seen what they can do. You know what I mean? And in a, in a climate in 2018 where everyone is just rings, 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 that all, that's all that matters. Um, you're like, why are they doing this if it seems like they're kind of like topped out? And then to see them take this step, it's one of those fascinating questions when a player develops. It's like, how much credit can you give the coach? How much credit do you give the player? Because you look at someone like DeMar DeRozan, who now all of a sudden can shoot threes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like after, what is he, 28 years old now? You know, um, to develop that so late in his career. But it's it's one of these like classic chicken egg questions. But he certainly is not getting in their way. You know, he's not um, doing anything to hinder what is an obviously good combination of players. Like you mentioned that all bench unit. Unlike, say, like a Mike Woodson uh, when he was coaching the Knicks, who was like, you know, the East is big man, even though Carmelo at the four was, you know, clearly their best lineup. Um, I mean, I do think it's possible that just, you know, the racial component could be playing into it. I mean, I don't want to, like, put thoughts in people's, uh, you know, minds, but you look at who the front runners typically are. Um, you know, you've got a Brad Stevens, you've got a Popovich, you've got a Carlisle, all excellent coaches, but I do think it's at least needs to be brought up. I don't think that you can answer definitively what's going on. 
Um, but in a country like ours, in a, in a year like this one, um, which is basically like any other year in the history of the world, I do think that could factor in. I just wanted to like be on the record as saying I think it's possible that people overlook him because of his race. I don't know. Well, the whole, I mean, just the, the lack of diversity in the NBA head coaching ranks, period, is uh-huh. just that that would just be the symptom of this issue as well, assuming if that's even at play. So, I mean, possibly. Yeah. It's also that the Raptors, I've made fun of their fans in the past who are basically, a lot of them are just remember my team fuss pots, and I, I tire of that. But the Raptors are one of those teams that always seem to, fly under the radar even when they shouldn't be like you didn't talk about the fact that Dwayne Casey was one of the head coaches at the all-star game this year that's just not something that was talked about we're more inclined to go to Brad Stevens because oh Gordon Hayward was injured and the the Celtics overturned basically two-thirds of their roster and yet they're still in contention for a top two record in the east even Doc Rivers seems like it like and this would remove the racial component. It seems like he gets more attention just because and I agree, this is one of his better coaching jobs ever because you look at the turnover the Clippers have endured, uh, the amount of two-way players that mm-hmm. they've run out this season, the the lineups he's turned to, the youngsters he's relied on. It's it's definitely one of his better bodies of work, but I just I look at the Raptors and it's just Dwayne Casey's essentially the DeMar DeRozan of coaches at this point, is he not? True, like he's yeah. Later in his career, and he's just undergone this evolution. And it's like you said, sometimes it's a matter of not getting in the way or just an issue of embracing your team's agenda. And when you're told by team president Masai Ujiri, we want to play these young guys, a lot of whom didn't really play a lot last season, coaches are always going to operate under the assumption that they need to win to save their job. And so to give that mandate to Casey doesn't necessarily mean he's going to follow it to a T. And I'm sure we've seen that around the league. It seemed like Mike Budnolzer was resisting giving John Collins heavy minutes at some points this season. But Casey really steered into it. And perhaps that says a lot about the relationship between him and Masai, about the Raptors organization in general. But he, to me, certainly deserves some credit. And and the last thing there is we don't hear about drama coming out of that locker room amid all these changes. Jonas Valanciunas is averaging a career low in minutes, and you don't hear a report about him being unhappy. He doesn't always close games. Kyle Lowry was displaced from the ball a lot more this year, and the loudest rumbling we heard from him at the beginning of the season was, yeah, it's been a little bit of an adjustment when he was struggling with his shot. So I, I just, that has to fall on the coach. Like, that has to be credit for him to some extent, I would think, as well. Yeah, those are all great points. I have tremendous respect for anyone who is willing to like constantly reevaluate what they think, why they think it, bring in new information, change the way they operate. The hardest thing in the world is to admit you're wrong and to do something else. <laughs> like for anyone in anything, you know what I mean? So um, he definitely deserves credit for that. I have one sort of like philosophical question about the coach of the year debate before we move uh, on. Like, how do you think... Like, what should the criteria be? Like, let's say, for the sake of argument, we think in a vacuum someone like Popovich is the best coach in the league on a year-to-year basis. Like, how do you judge on any given year? Is it someone who overcomes the biggest challenge? Is it just who we know to be the best coach? What do you think that criteria should be? It always kind of comes down to a semantics question um, when it comes to these awards, most valuable player, coach of the year. For this particular one, what do you think people should be looking at? For this particular one, and it it does kind of go against the grain of how we treat the MVP award, but I just look at 
how a team is done and some of the decisions that a coach is, has made relative to expectations. Like, I don't think anyone would have named the Raptors as a potential owner of the Eastern Conference's number one seed coming into the season. I don't think that you could have said their second most used lineup would be a bench lineup. I don't think you could have said or guaranteed all the, that their second most used lineup would be a bench lineup or that they would play all these young guys, but they would still have a top five defense or that their defense would outperform their offense. And when I, I don't want to say I need to be caught off guard Mm-hmm. to really invest in a coach of the year. But I think there needs to be either that combination of really exceeding expectations or you need to overcome something that other coaches haven't necessarily had to deal with. And that might be Greg Popovich would be a perfect example this year just because you haven't had Kawhi Leonard. He's only played in nine games and yet you have the second best defense in the league. You're contending for a top three spot in the West. Like something like that is really a feather under his cap. So it's either that or it's a, a transformation from the team. And that would be the third form of criteria I use. And the Raptors kind of fill, they check two of those boxes. They haven't dealt with injuries or really real adversity this year, but they've exceeded expectations and they've undergone, they've done so while undergoing this transformation on the court. And those are just kind of the three things I look for when looking at the coach of the year. It's interesting when you ask these questions, though, because I trip over my words just because there's no criteria and everything is so indistinct and so subjective and everyone values different things. Uh, it's a wonder that there are ever consensus favorites. I know. Like in my, <laughs> I think the most interesting thing about it is the discussion around it. Because ultimately, this kind of thing doesn't matter. Like, who's the coach of the year in the NBA? <laughs> like, no one's lives are being lost over this sort of, you know, thing. So I, it's just an interesting way to gauge people's temperatures and what they think is important to them any given season and um, how they like to think about the league and basketball in general. And that's kind of what I take out of it more than anything. Um, I don't really think there is a right answer. I'm not ever someone who's going to be like super passionate about like how could you, you know? If I think well, that the Knicks coach some year deserves it, yeah, I'll get super passionate <laughs> about it. But otherwise, it's I don't know. It is largely a matter of taste. It's it's sort of like it's like a matter of taste within. We should kind of agree of like a agree about like a like a tiers. Like I, I, people should roughly right. agree on tiers. I feel like more than anything. And it's you're right. There's like there's no wrong answer just because they haven't set concrete criteria. And the MVP discussion is probably just the best example or even the defensive player of the year conversation where it's so hard to really quantify a player's value. So anecdotal evidence or just the eye test matters so much more. But with the MVP, can you really if someone wants to simplify it down to I'm going to vote for the best player on the best team? Can you really fault them for doing that? Or can you go if someone if realistically if someone wanted to vote for uh, like a Kemba Walker this year or someone who's so so indispensable that their team plays like a very good team when they're on the floor but they're absolute crap when they step off you can't really fault them for looking at the indispensability factor either right and then, like you said there are so many variables for all these defensive player of the year is a great example because you could look at someone and be like oh well look at how many blocks they have but then you could look at someone else and be like. Well, they'd have a lot more, only they're such a great rim protector and no one even challenges them anymore, and so their block numbers are depressed. Like, there's always these factors. That's kind of one of the beautiful things about sports. Like, you can try as much as you can to quantify things, or just, like, life in general, but there's always going to be this element of it that's sort of, like, unquantifiable, and that, to me, is where, like, the interesting part lives. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you there, and that's the... and. I guess they keep it that way just because that's the grounds for debate and what just drives discussion. Because if you put 
just if you install like uh, like guidelines, that's going to take away a bunch of the debate, and you're going to have more. It took the NBA so long to have a unanimous unanimous MVP for that reason, and they probably love that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to now talk about LeBron James. Uh, he's been in the news lately because he is now the oldest NBA player to I like. I like that we've transitioned to this kind of um, superlative with LeBron now, because forever it was always the youngest to do this, the youngest to do that. Now he's the oldest to average a triple-double over an entire month. My question to you is, will he ever break down? This guy has played 43,497 minutes. Is there any equivalent to this in the history of the league? I, I no, it's and it's just it's not even close. And I don't, I almost don't even want to broach the topic because I'm just afraid that I'm going to jinx him. But you kind of look at typical signs of aging. Uh, do you see that a a lot less, fewer of his looks are coming around the rim, as we saw kind of with Kobe or Dwayne Wade? Mm-hmm. And really, no, LeBron. More of LeBron James's shots this season are coming inside three feet than they did in 2012-2013, his age 28 season with the Miami Heat when he was just absolutely dominant. Uh, he's kind of worked. It's weird to me still to see him shoot. Sometimes they're random. Sometimes he takes a few a game. These pull-up three-pointers from him. Is that going to be his evolution if he really can't blow past guys or overpower them around the rim or he really takes his crusade against the referees and then time trying to protect shooters to the next level and just starts jacking threes and becomes like this elite three-point shooter? He's at 36% this season from beyond the arc. Uh, he shot 40% beyond the arc once in 2012-2013. Could he just become that lights-out shooter if he wanted to, which would help prolong his career? Because now all of a sudden he's a guy who would be able to come around screens or maybe be stuck in the corner a little bit. I, I honestly don't know. I can't fathom an inferior version of LeBron James either, though. Like Part of me almost feels like, I don't know how many years down the line, but we could still be seeing this exact version of LeBron, and then he just leaves because he's not going to try and turn into like this glorified compliment to another superstar. Yeah, I don't know that I want to see him in his Michael Jordan on the Wizards phase. Uh, that'll be depressing. But I do, I do think it's possible that he just one day just like falls off a cliff. And that's going to be the most jarring thing ever if that does happen. But you touched on something very briefly, which I wasn't even planning on talking about. But it is actually uh, fairly interesting to me. He had LeBron in these comments the other day about the NBA favoring shooters over guys who drive to the basket saying that they call fouls on shooters like so easily and you can drive to the basket get mauled and there's no foul called um and some fans are have you know said like stop whining lebron um i tend to think stylistically i don't know if stylistically is the word i want to use but um i I do think i think he's kind of right i don't know where do you where do you stand on this i i would like to see you do see so many drives. I know it's difficult. Like, in any NBA play, you can kind of call a foul like at any time. There's always clutching and grabbing going on. You, you try to keep it to only fouls that, like, really affect, you know, the flow of that particular play. But do you think there's merit to his complaints? Maybe on some level. I just – I can't imagine it being a conscious decision against drivers. Maybe it's an emphasis on protecting shooters – uh, especially in the aftermath of what happened in the Western Conference Finals last year between Zaza Pachulia and Kawhi Leonard. And I, so I get that, and the NBA is now a jump-shooting league, so it would make sense that your attention, even if there's no mandate, maybe it just gravitates toward the mm-hmm. shooters because that's where most of the action is coming from. 
I think what also hurts LeBron, and there's statistically it seems like there's a case because his his percentage of looks that are coming at the rim have not dropped off substantially, and yet he's posting the second lowest free throw rate of his career. What I think might ultimately hurt him is when you're watching him, some of the stuff he does, it, it, it almost looks too easy and is taken for granted. Like there's contact and whether or not you want to argue he initiated it, like sometimes guys just bounce off him or he's just able to kind of cut through thickets of arms and finish around the rim and it looks almost like it was uncontested. And that's not necessarily his fault. I'm not even saying that's the primary reason he's going to the free throw line less this year maybe he's taking off at a different point if we really went back and looked at the film uh suffering from kind of derrick rose itis where he just Mm -hmm. kind of changed where he was finishing around the rim from i don't think it's that but he does have some point looking at the shooter specifically but i don't i just again it's one of those things where i struggle to say that there would be a conscious decision to one say we have to worry about the shooters or two to say that and know that it's going to come at the expense of the drivers yeah, I agree. The one thing that I will say is that um, I know that the NBA consciously tried to kind of uh, get away from calling that, you know, foul on the defense where the shooter just sort of does that rip through motion as soon as he sees like a hand come out, like Harden, you know, sort of perfected this. Um, and they've done well at emphasizing that, but I, I do, th- I see it more than I would like to see personally. Um, when there's still a little bit like, and I think part of that is they're trying to protect shooters. They don't like guys getting underneath them when they jump. And so they're kind of like, you know, which is fair because when you Bruce Bowen someone and break their ankle, um, <laughs> it's, especially some of like the biggest stars in the NBA, like a Curry, who's always, you know, sh- you know shooting seven threes a game or whatever it is. Um, you do want to protect those guys, but I-, I do think that could be cleaned up a little bit more. Um, but that's. I'm kind of with you. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I would like to see some sort of like evidence to back it up. I testy. It feels like it's possible, but I'm not all the way there yet. And it's a, how do you prove like a prejudice against attackers? I just even when I'm looking at saying, "Wow, LeBron's free throw rate is ridiculously low." Yeah. I haven't watched a game this year and thought that the officiating has just been so bad against him. And even when the officiating's bad, it's usually bad both ways. I feel like it's there. Yes. It's the rare game where it either doesn't balance out or there's such a discrepancy that it legitimately impacts the outcome. Well, this is, I mean, I don't even, I could spend like two weeks talking about this, but this is sort of my crusade against um, instant replay on some level because there's just like so many missed calls throughout any game. The ones at like the end of the game, all right, they're like more important on some level because it's the end of the game, but... There was a whole game with calls made and not made that should have been and shouldn't have been and this obsession with getting everyone right. It's like it kind of does even out, you know, over the course of of a game, of a season. And it's Right, just, it's like blaming the kicker in the NFL for a loss. And it's like, well, I mean, if the game was that close where it came down to a field goal, exactly. it's really on the kicker. <laughs> I did, as an aside, I do always wonder, and you see this, is when, let's say a ref, they're reviewing a call and they called what was – a defensive foul but they go back and it was like clearly an offensive foul but you can't you you don't get to reverse that call i i just i wonder what that's like in their head are they like okay i have to make that up somehow and then that would again contribute to some uneven officiating but that has to kind of feel like crud if you're like you you missed a call but then you have to go back and look at it while you're still working it's not reviewing the tape <laughs> oh, I know. while and they, the game is still going on you know they do that they absolutely do that and i even saw some compelling evidence a couple years ago i forget what it was it was something about like 
the prevalence of offensive fouls being called after like known bullshit. I don't know how they quantified the known bullshit, <laughs> <laughs> but it was like in these certain situations they call like offensive fouls afterwards like way more to try to like make up. I, I'm I'll look this up for my podcast audience. So you, I'm actually making like a cogent point um, for the next episode. But someone like did make a pretty strong case for the existence of makeup fouls once that was like very uh, convincing to me. I want to um, talk about perhaps an under the radar NBA story. I want to talk about something statistical. But first, I want to remind you guys that you're listening to Locked On Knicks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. We got a podcast for every team in the NBA and the NFL. If you like the Giants, you might like if you like the Knicks, excuse me, you might like the Giants. Uh, Locked On Giants has new hosts, Patricia Trena and Ed Valentine. They're really excellent. They do a great job. I think you guys should check them out. Once again, that's Locked On Giants. So, Dan, like I said, sometimes the people uh, stuck in Knicks land lose sight of what's going on in the rest of the league. And by people, I mean me. So, I'm hoping, <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping you can... Uh, is, What's like an NBA storyline that maybe isn't getting as much attention as some of the bigger ones or, or one that you find interesting? I was actually going to go up with, before I remember that we were talking about Coach of the Year, I was going to go with Dwayne Casey, but uh-huh. the, the Indiana Pacers for me. And ah, all right, I, go, I, on, go on. I roll with them because I was when I was recording my own podcast, we were having a conversation about the playoffs, and we just penciled them into, like, I don't know if it was the Eastern Conference's, like, sixth seed or something, and barely even considered them to contend for home court advantage, and yet they've just been consistently better than really good this year. And I don't even know, like, how else to put it. They're they're fifth in the East right now. They're only one game back in the loss column of the fourth-place Wizards. They have the seventh-best offense in the league. You lose Darren Collison, and you just insert Corey Joseph into the starting lineup, and that resulting starting five has just not missed a beat. They're destroying opponents per 100 possessions. They're posting a better defensive rating than the opening lineup does with Darren Collison. Their bench is sneaky deep. Their defense isn't great, but they're right around the Milwaukee Bucks level right now for the season, which is fine. And Victor Oladipo has been sensational. And I say that as someone who basically crapped all over his hot start saying that, you know, he's going to cool off, but he's, He's hitting tough shots. He's hitting more of his pull-up three-pointers than Kevin Durant, a greater percentage of them anyway. So it's just – and he's scoring so well in isolation there. They're a team that I – if I'm an Eastern Conference squad, I don't want to face them in the first round. They're not someone that's going to come out of the playoffs. Uh, A lot of their offense – or I I shouldn't say – but a good amount of their offense is predicated on getting out in transition when you watch them, and a lot of those opportunities are going to be taken away against more elite defenses. But if you look at the playoff bracket right now, if I'm a Wizards, give me a healthy John Wall, and I still don't want to face the Indiana Pacers. So they're going to be – if they can avoid that matchup with Cleveland in the first round, they're going to be an interesting test for anyone they face. I love Oladipo's story um, just because it's – one of like the many reminders, especially for you know, let's say the Knicks fan base. Uh, this is his fifth year, right? And like this is his leap. You know, this is his big leap. Like it doesn't always happen soon. Um, and I also found it interesting because when he came out of Indiana, like he was my favorite player in that draft by far. And I was really like, what happened? Why? 
<laughs> Why does he suck? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I am a flawless evaluator of talent. So from a selfish perspective, I love seeing him uh, play well. Obviously, I hate the Indiana Pacers as a Knicks fan. But uh, it just like anytime you see someone who's able to put it together three, four, or five years down the road into their NBA career, I think that's always a good story. But so it is obviously he is doing wonderfully. Who else on that team is really driving that success? Is it just the way they play off each other, or are there other like is Miles Turner killing it? Their offense is, and it's weird because their shot selection isn't the best. They take a lot of long twos, and so do the Minnesota Timberwolves. But when I watch the Minnesota Timberwolves, I don't, and the Timberwolves are have a more efficient offense overall in the season. When I watch the Timberwolves, I don't see a good offensive team. They get a lot of offensive rebounds. They get to the foul line. And yet, when I watch the Pacers, even when they're taking some bad shots or low-quality shots, it just looks right. You have guys, and you kind of alluded to it, they're, they're playing off one another. Miles Turner's flown under the radar on the offensive end this year. It looks like he's taken a step back defensively. He's still got good verticality around the rim, though, and he's he still has the modest three-point range. And you just look at the pull-up shooting they've been getting from guys like Bojan Bogdanovic and, and Thaddeus Young in addition to Victor Oladipo and to just have guys who really try hard or you know work out of the pick and pop. Like DeMantis Sabonis just seems like he's kind of automatic. I'm not crazy about his shot selection and I, I'm a big – I'm like a too much of a shot profile guy mm-hmm. at points where I'm like I don't want to see those – long twos but you can put demantis sabonis from like the 10 to 16 foot range and i'm just okay with it because i always feel like it's going in for them and everyone seems to play off one another you looked at victor oladipo who has an insanely high usage rate and yet he seems perfectly content to be off the ball a bunch he'll operate with a lot of dribble handoffs where he's not really gaining possession until the last second I'm very interested to see how this team develops moving forward. Some of these guys might not be back next year because of non-guaranteed contracts, okay. but I'm even more interested to see how they fare in the playoffs with this offense because it, it just works. Even when you look at some of the things on paper that shouldn't, again, like their distribution to the long twos, they're still lights out from three-point range. They get out in transition. Oladipo really gets to the foul line. They they have guys who just continue to hit tough shots. And as I keep telling people when they ask about it, you know, we're 75% of the way through the season. Like, the flukes are gone. The facades have faded. The the Pacers' offense is apparently for real, and I'm I'm really interested to see how it holds up. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it'll ever happen because of the simple math that three is greater than two, but I would just love for some team to come out of nowhere and somehow base an offense around the mid-range game. Just because stylistically I miss a little bit of that variance that there once was, and I feel like it's been lost. I don't... The you know three three ball and at the rim can get a little boring sometimes, especially if you're not one of the top teams. If you're one of these like mid tier like not great shooting teams, you know hoisting a hundred threes a game, it gets a little boring. Um, I don't know what can ever be done to <laughs> combat that, but probably just ball movement because the Spurs do like a good job of subsisting on a lot of mid range jumpers. They also are smart enough to put the right personnel in place to kind of do that Mm -hmm. you have LaMarcus Aldridge who's just one of the best tough shot makers in the game but you look at a team like and I don't mean to keep coming back to the Knicks but they don't shoot nearly enough threes and yet really their only elite mid-range guy is going to be Kristaps Porzingis and you so it's you know Anus Cantor can do some stuff but he's better when he puts the ball on the floor is just in the post so there's probably a way to do it and the Timberwolves unfortunately even though it's hard to watch 
I might just be tainted by seeing all these other teams like the Warriors, or you look at how the Rockets play, and the Timberwolves are so drastically different that it just doesn't sit right. They have one of the league's five best offenses, and they really do, as I said before, just feast on offensive rebounds, getting to the free throw line, and they have guys like Jimmy Butler who can who can hit some ugly shots. So it, it could probably be done, but if you're going to like at some point though the the variance is going to crack like you put a team like the Timberwolves who kind of I don't want to say they actively avoid the 3 but they don't shoot nearly enough of them and you throw them up against the Rockets in a 7 game series what happens in the game that they fall behind by 10 points how do you really make up that variance if you're not going to rely on the 3 ball with with some frequency yeah it's interesting because a team like the Knicks you know they're at the bottom of the league in three point uh shooting they're always going to need to shoot more than they are but as much as we talked about the Warriors and uh, the Cavs leading to this kind of perfect storm of like tank problems, perhaps, um, you could look at it in the same way for three-point shooting. Like In order to beat them now, yes, you have to keep up with them. But that team's not going to be around forever either. So like maybe when they disband, that becomes like... It's always going to be important. Like The cat's out of the bag... Until they, unless they get rid of threes, and you know, hopefully they don't. That would be pretty <laughs> terrible. Um, like you're, you're going to need to shoot more now than you did 15 years ago. But you may not have to be like everyone on the court shooting six threes a game the way you kind of have to be to beat the Warriors now. Right. You could just if maybe there's just going to be a team that comes along and they just decide that we're going to take we're going to grind the shot clock down, take every single attempt within three seconds, and be super efficient at doing it. We're just going to slow it down so much you're forced to operate in the half court that you're not that you're going to have there's going to be too much time you're not going to be able to catch us off guard and and set up these good pull up three point looks and you're going to if you want to shoot a ton of three pointers against us you need Stephen Curry because he has to hit these ridiculous circus shots from beyond the arc and then that forces you to go into these uh these half court executions that aren't necessarily always going to emphasize long range looks there are teams that do do it when they slow down the pace in the half court but if you're going to set up shop you're it always seems like you're invariably going to look in the post you're going to try and at least drive and attack the basket and draw a foul you're not always the league isn't i would say players they do fall in love with pull up threes but there aren't a ton of players that go into half court sets and and really just look for these face up pull up threes they like those to come within the rhythm of the offense or within transition or just early in the shot clock in general Mm-hmm. No, totally. Um, I want to now talk about, you are involved with uh, NBA Math, the excellent site. I want to talk about something mathy, to put that as intelligently as possible. Um, is there any work that like you guys are doing over there, or anything from the statistical world um, that has been you know catching your eye lately? I don't know. A- a- anything vaguely in that area? that has been getting you going recently well nba math just launched a parent site for people who like golf called pga math so they should definitely check out pjmath.com and rumor has it i will neither confirm nor deny that there will be other sites being rolled out um i definitely do this would this kind of coalesces nicely that they just had the slow and sports analytic conference mm-hmm. um i wish i could have been there we nba math i think had one or two people that ended up there i would have loved to have been in the room for that barack obama speech that was eventually made public but it, it like had to be off the record i don't know if you saw that he talked I'm to vaguely aware i knew that he talked i didn't know that there was like any kind of thing around it 
Yeah, and it was. I read most of the transcript from the interview, and I didn't understand why it needed to be like so hush hush. I don't even think say what was the... it, nothing. Like it was, there was just nothing that seemed <laughs> controversial. I don't think he even mentioned the word Trump once. So like, I don't know with what, what all the secrecy was, but I was also reading that I think people had to sign like non disclosure agreements or what? something, or maybe they had to turn over their phones. I, I don't. It was something crazy, and I didn't was get it to try phone. to like make people pay more money to attend next year because it's like, well, if you want to hear what you know Bill Gates has to say about basketball, you got to be there. Is it something like that? I I honestly have no idea. I would have loved to have been there. It, it seemed like a very just like run of the mill talk for or at least par for the course for that conference but i would have loved to have been like in in the room for that and i you know if he's gonna talk it's going out i got a hot take obama's a boring interview did you see that uh david letterman interview with him maybe it was letterman's fault but well these they're like snooze fest man he's got to be so practiced and polished at this point that he sleepwalks through everything it's like interviewing when when i'm interviewing players and this isn't too i've interviewed some really good all-stars and they're very they seem engaged and they seem to like the subject matter sometimes but if you go and interview you know chris paul or john wall they seem like they're going to be bored out of their damn minds i'd rather one of the best interviews i ever did was drew gooden journeyman drew good and they just they always seem more super engaged so it uh-huh. just seems like something like that to me obama's done so many of these things that he's probably just you know kind of pussyfooting his way through these things or sleepwalking around he's he's the warriors now of the interviews he's in cruise control for sure but getting back to stats were you about to go somewhere with the sloan conference i, I sidetracked us with obama um no nothing specific with the sloan conference i am doing a podcast with two people who attended it so i've again i've never been so there would be more uh behind the scenes stuff there i do want to also say that i am a fan of and i guess this kind of journeys off the beaten path i don't know how you feel about this i love like super specific like stat breakdowns like i i know people get mad when they're like oh donovan mitchell uh, is the only rookie since Michael Jordan to post his true shooting percentage and usage rate as a rookie. And I love that stuff. Oh, I love it I too. Don't, I don't know why people get so bent out of shape. I don't know why like, people get so bent out of shape about almost anything having to do with basketball. It's like, calm down. <laughs> there was the most random one. It happened fairly recently. I was writing about Joe Harris. And Joe Joe Harris in Brooklyn has like added this really – I love watching it because he was such a good shooter and no one expected him to do anything else. So now he's just added like this pump and peel game where he like fakes opponents. Then he just takes off and beelines towards the basket. He's shooting 57.9% on drives, which is the second best mark among 150 plus players to stage at least four drives a game. And the only player in front of him is LeBron James. And someone on Twitter was like, so bent out of shape, like, well, does it matter if we're just going to put in all these qualifiers and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, give me the qualifiers. Like there's a point where it gets ridiculous. If you want to look at the per 36 minute splits of someone who's only played 20 minutes this season, like I get it, but uh, g- give me, give me qualifiers. That's my, that's my mini stat. Right. I love that you brought up Joe Harris because he drives me crazy anytime he does anything good because he just looks like he should be working in like a Walgreens. And I'm like, <laughs> what's this guy doing? Being a legitimate NBA player? I actually, you know, I like to sometimes name the most hateable player on like different teams that the Knicks are facing, and I sense I've taken it back for Quincy AC, but Joe Harris was my initial pick on the Nets because he just drives me nuts. I'm like, why is this guy competent at all? It's um, like the hobo's Kyle Korver. <laughs> he really is. It's a good call. And I think that's a good way to 
end this wonderful discussion. Uh, Dan, I want to thank you very much for joining me. Is there anything you want to plug before we say goodbye? Um, I did just drop a free agent target that every single team um, should chase over the offseason over at Bleacher Report, and I did not recycle a single name once. So you're looking at a different name for every single team. So if they want to go check out some really bad takes, they should get over to Bleacher Report and look for that. If people are listening to this show, then I know for a fact that they love bad takes. That's awesome, then. That was fun, right? I had a great time talking to Dan. I hope you guys enjoyed our talk. That's it for us for today's show. Thank you very much for listening. Just want to remind you that we are doing a mailbag pod on Friday. Okay? So send in your questions now. If you got a moment, rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Tell your friends about the sensation that is locked on Nick's if you haven't already. And follow us on Twitter at LockedOnNicks. You can follow me personally on Twitter at NBA Injury Report. Be chill to each other. Have a good rest of your day. Join us tomorrow for another episode of Locked On Knicks. Peace!